Thank you for tuning in to today's audio message. Here at Temple Baptist Church, we are a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Good morning, everybody. Good. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for coming. It's good to be here. It's kind of like uh, being living in a kitchen today. We're going to be sitting nice and comfortable in the fridge, and then when we leave, it's going to be like jumping right into the oven. So, uh, uh, but it's glad, I'm glad that we can be here and comfortable together today. This is, uh, we're the, really in the middle of our No Matter What Summer Series, a study in the book of Philippians. And we're going to get there really quickly. So if you can grab your Bible or uh, an electronic device that you maybe brought with you, you can find Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, and I love uh, what passage we're going to look at because in a, in a real practical sense, this is going to give us a little bit of how-to when it comes to uh, our mission here at the church. We're all about connecting people to Jesus and to one another. And some of what we're going to look at today is a little bit of a how-to when it comes to that. So I'm very excited. And it's all connected with the previous couple of weeks that we've been studying. So in Philippians chapter 2, it's a, really it's a, we call it a book, but it's really a letter um, some of you may be aware it's a, a letter written by Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. Uh, and it's a really interesting story that he has. He's writing uh, from prison and he's writing a letter about joy to a group of Christians who live in a Roman colony in the city of Philippi about a thousand miles away. So uh, it's really an interesting setup. And if you think about Paul, Paul is a, has a, an incredibly uh, interesting and compelling story. Paul, when, this, uh, when Jesus was living here on earth and teaching people, he started to get a following. There were a lot of people that liked what he said. There were a lot of people that loved what he did. Miracles, and, uh, and he challenged the religious leaders. and So he got a great following, and people were following him and listening to him. Uh, but those who were part of the religious establishment didn't like what Jesus was doing, didn't like the crowd that was building. And so they started making things difficult for these people. They started uh, harassing them, and they started arresting them, and they started uh, even putting some of them to death. It was a, a really difficult situation. And Paul was part of that group of the religious leaders of the day. At that time, he was trying to get rid of this group of people, what we would call Christians. But then they didn't call them Christians. They called them the way, the people of the way. It's probably because when their leader, Jesus, says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so they called them the way. And these people, the way, were actually getting in the way for other people, for the religious establishment. And they wanted to get rid of them as best they could. And Paul took a real leadership role, trying to do what they could, he could to uh, stamp out this whole movement. He wanted to get rid of everything. Until one day, after Jesus was, had been arrested, after he had been crucified, after he had been buried, after he had risen again, he appeared to Paul. This was a life-changing moment for Paul. This was a confrontation. Jesus basically saying, why are you working against me? And Paul was probably thinking, because I didn't think you were really God, but I know now you sort of are, so uh, maybe we should rethink this whole situation. And Jesus, this is not exactly how it's written. This is kind of, kind of how it went. And Jesus says, well, why don't you come and work on our side? And he kind of recruited him. And then Paul became 
He went from persecuting and trying to wipe out the Christians, the members of the way, to being a leader, to let people know we need to connect everybody we can to Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the way. And he became a real leader. And eventually, he got arrested. He got put in prison. And while he was there, he wrote a letter to a number of different churches in a number of different cities. And this one is the city of Philippi that he's writing to. And we've been studying this a little bit together over the last uh, couple of weeks through this summer. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 2 and just do a little bit of a review to make sure uh, we know the little background to get to the verses starting in verse 19. But we're going to look starting at the very beginning. In the first few verses of this chapter, Paul's writing about unity. He says we need to be of one mind, we need to be of one heart, we need to be united uh, under Jesus because of this affection that we have. He says that we should be of the same mind. And then he goes on to say a little bit more about what we should be doing. He says don't do anything out of selfish ambition. He goes to the root of our, uh, the reason why we do things, our motivations. He says don't do anything out of selfish ambition, but with humility. He says, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important. And then verse 4, it says, don't do anything or do nothing. Um, Do not merely look out for your personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I just want to explain this a little bit, because we're going to get back to it in the verses to come. He says, don't merely look for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. It's key. Now let's make sure we know what he's saying and what he's not saying. First, we need to know that it's a story, this uh, command that we're giving. Uh, the, when Paul was writing it, he wasn't writing just to those in authority in the church. He wasn't writing just to those who were mature. He was writing to everyone who was a believer. Everyone in that church, regardless of how long you've lived, uh, how, regardless of how long you've believed in Jesus, how far along you are along that way, to every believer, he's saying these things. He says, do nothing Uh, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So first, this is for all of us, all believers. But also, the command isn't exclusively outward. He's not saying, don't ever look out for your own interests. But he's assuming that we do look out for our own interests, but let's not forget the interests of others. In a sense, we need to put others' interests ahead of ours at times. And then he says, third, I think the idea behind this is it's really more than one person. It's not like we're supposed to pick one person and put their interests ahead of ours. It's not an each one, reach one sort of idea. It's not just a little pay it forward kind of idea. Although those concepts do have a good ring of truth to them. He's talking about everyone. And it's a strange thing when you think about it. He's first writing to the church and he's saying, make sure everybody in the church, make sure you look after their interests before you look after your own. But I think he's expanding it to uh, the community as well. And I think by the Great Commission, when he's, the, the idea is throughout our whole world, we should be looking at the, at the interests of others uh, even before we look at the interests of ourselves. And then he gives, in the next few verses, an example of Jesus. Jesus as our example, and he says, starting in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed before the form of God, did not, re- did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And then a few uh, sentences down, he says that he humbled himself, and he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Here is our example. He says, let this mindset be in you that was in Jesus. He is our example. This is how we are supposed to live, in that 
humility of spirit. And then in verse 12, go skip down to verse 12 if you have that in front of you. So he said all of that. Then he says, so then, my beloved, just as you've always uh, obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this is what Joe said last week. If you were here last week, what a great service it was. And what a great sermon that Joe had when he shared his story. And he was sharing his story. He mentioned these verses. He was sharing his story about how he's trying to work out his salvation. And he said it's not working for salvation. We already have, if we believe in Jesus, we have that free gift of salvation. But somehow salvation, this forgiveness of sins, this relationship with Jesus, being connected with Jesus, is supposed to be more than just a situation. It's supposed to permeate our entire being. It's supposed to work its way. The fact that Jesus has done what he's done for us is supposed to work out through my entire existence. And that's what Paul says when he, that's what he's saying when he says to work out your salvation. Let what happened to you when, when you got saved work, work its way into every part of your life. And our example is Jesus. And Joe mentioned that he was trying, he was working through all of this and letting, even through the difficulty of his story, And he talked about his wife, Wendy, who, at the time of her struggle with cancer, was working out her salvation, letting the experience of salvation work out through all of her existence. And we heard last week a lot of the things that uh, Joe and Wendy learned, even through the time that Wendy lost her battle with cancer and in the days, months, and years following What an emotional service it was last week. And I know a lot of you came up and spoke to Joe and thanked him. Um, Near the end, almost everybody was gone. I was out in the lobby for a while, and I thought, I'm going to come down and talk to Joe too. And I came down. I knew all of you guys had been really nice to him, that were talking to him. I knew you congratulated him and, and told him how much you appreciated and how open he was, and all those things were true. But I was just too emotional. I didn't, I didn't really like... Um, crying all the whole service. And I don't know if you liked it or not. So I came down to him and I was a little more aggressive than most of you would have been. Uh, I went to him and I said, Joe, that was terrible. I said, it was awful. I said, 15 seconds into your sermon, third sentence, I was already crying. That was terrible. And he laughed. You know, he didn't, uh, he didn't really understand the depth of the difficulty I was going through. <laughs> But he, uh, it was great to be able to talk to him and hear more of, of his story. And he's saying, he talked about working out your salvation. Let Jesus, as we've connected with him, get more and more connected with him. Then he infiltrates all of our life. And so he has said, work out your own salvation. And then he goes on to give us what we're going to look at this morning, two other examples to follow. Now, I don't know if you have examples in your life to follow. Some of you have grown up in situations where you think, what I have as an example is an example of what not to do. That's fine. And some of us respond and react to the the way we were raised. Some of us have other people in our lives. We think, boy, that person knows how to do something. And we're going to use them as an example in our life in order that we can become that kind of person. Some of us, though, have that lone wolf kind of idea where we tend to separate and we insulate and we protect ourselves and we really only look out for our own interests. For others, we allow people, other people to determine who we are. 
We sometimes are bound to our past and we sometimes even allow ourselves to be uh, limited by the opinions of others. I guess I'm asking the question is, do you have an example? Who do you copy? Who do you follow? Where are your examples? Well, Paul is holding up this morning two people as examples of character and what it would look like if we allowed our salvation to infiltrate all of who we are. And he gives an example of Timothy, and he gives another example in a moment after. We're going to first look at Timothy. But rather than just calling it two examples to follow, I thought we should call it what you should want them to say when you're gone. What you should want them to say about you when you're gone. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at some things that hopefully you want people to say about you when you're gone. Um, my uh, uncle passed away this past this week, and the funeral is on Tuesday up in London. And I've already had a number of phone calls from people who uh, knew my uncle and called and offered condolences. And they in, uh, invariably would say something really nice about my uncle, about how, what a great guy he was, or how he was always there for them, or how he helped them. And it's wonderful to hear. And I was reminded, people are going to talk about you when you're gone. And I sort of started thinking in my, in my head, I wonder what people are going to say about different people when they're gone. Then I thought, I wonder what people are going to think about me, when, or what they're going to say about me when I'm gone. They're probably going to go to my wife, Liz, and say, Liz, at least he's gone. <laughs> I, you know, you've, you've always, you got that. You got that going for you now, right? Um, but so let's look at some of these ideas, what you should want people to, um, to say about you when you're gone. Starting in verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that, um, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. And he says, I have no one else like him. Some of you have a different version that you're looking at. It might not have, use those words, I have no one else like him. New American Standard uses the term a kindred spirit. It's a, that's a great kind of a translation. It's, it's really two Greek words that are smushed together to make one. The two words are equal and psyche, or equal and soul, or equal and spirit. He says we are equal in spirit. We're, we're just like each other. And he doesn't mean in personality. He doesn't mean in gifting. But he's talking about really what Timothy is all about. The important things for Timothy was to let people know about the gospel, to get people connected with Jesus. And that's what Paul was all about. He knew that people needed to know Jesus. And that's what, that's what he was focusing on for his life. And he said, Timothy is like a kindred spirit to me. We're like equal in spirit. We, he has the exact same motivation that I have. There's a great example. Number one, is my salvation experience... Realizing that Jesus has done what he's done for me, forgiving me, saving me, giving me purpose, all of what he's done, is that working its way out in my life so that I have that same kind of spirit as Paul, as Timothy? Am I devoted to making sure that everybody knows, not just about Jesus, but everybody gets connected to Jesus, has a chance to believe in him? Paul says, I've got no one else like him. He's talking about the commitment to that good news. He says, I have no one else like him, and then the next phrase, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. He knows that Timothy will show concern. 
But he also knows that the concern that he shows is not manufactured. The concern that he shows is genuine. You know what it's like when someone shows fake concern for you. Uh, when something happens and they just sort of say, are you all right? Are you okay? And then you know the difference between that and genuine concern. I just saw yesterday uh, a news clip uh, in California. And some of you may have heard this, uh, this story that happened this week on the trains in California. Uh, there was a man who was having a seizure. And he apparently was unconscious and had fallen kind of in the open doorway of the train at the platform. And there's a man in a business suit. I don't know if it's a business suit. It's a man in a suit. It doesn't say business on it or anything on the clip. I don't know, I don't know why we use that term. Why do we use that term, business suit? Anyway, there's a man in a suit all dressed up, looked like he was on his way to work. Uh, and he went and he grabbed this guy by the shoulders, got behind him, grabbed him by the shoulders and pulled him off the train and laid him down on the platform. And when I was first looking at it, I thought, oh, this is good. He's, he's going to help. And then he left him, stepped over him, back onto the train, and sat down. Apparently, he didn't want to be late for his appointment or for work. That's not concern for others. That's concern for yourself. And as terrible as that sounds, there are some times in our lives when we're tempted just to do things so that we benefit, not necessarily to the benefit of others. And so if we're allowing this, what God has done for us in connecting us with his son through salvation, if we're allowing that to permeate our entire being, we're going to be a little bit more like Timothy. We're going to be a little bit more like Jesus. They said, Paul wrote first in this chapter, here's your example, be like Jesus. That's what being connected with Jesus is. It's more than just salvation. It's more than just forgiveness. It's more than just purpose for life. It's growth. God wants to work in my life so that I'm more like Jesus every single day, every single year. And that's what he wants for all of us who are his followers. Continually being connected. He says, Timothy will show you genuine concern. Genuine concern. And he says, for everyone looks out for their own interests. But for Timothy, he's saying that Timothy is oriented toward others. Timothy is others-oriented. That's what it's supposed to look like. We become less self-centered. This is difficult at times because we tend to think of ourselves first anyway, right? We don't usually say, like for me, I don't usually say, I wonder if somebody else is hungry. I say, I'm hungry, right? I don't say other things and think about others first all the time, right? I don't say, I wonder if somebody is late for a meeting. I say, I'm late for a meeting. Then I say, I hope that other person is later than I am. But it's a little self-centered to look that way, isn't it? It's a little self-centered to, to think those, those kinds of thoughts. It's like the, the rooster who thinks that the sun gets up in the morning just to hear him crow. Right? That's, the, that's a little self-centered, right? So I, I looked at what self-centered this is. You know, what a self-centered person is like. They like to think that they're superior to others. And I have in my notes, they, 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 but I think I should change it to we. We who are self-centered... We tend to think that we are superior to others. We are consumed by our own world and our own image, what others think of us. We consider friendships a tool for getting what we want. And I bristle at that one. But I remember when I was in university, I had a friend who went to the same church, 
And I remember one specific Sunday, I'll never forget this phrase that he said. I said, oh, there's somebody over there. Do you know them at all? And they said, no, I don't know them at all. They can't help me. They can't do anything for me. And I thought, what do you mean? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I only talk to people who can do something for me. And I only talk to people if I can benefit from the conversation. And I was shocked. I had never thought that anybody would think that way, let alone say it, right? Right in church. We're right in church. He goes, I don't talk to that person. They can't do anything for me. I only talk to people who can do something for me. And yet, really, that's what that self-centeredness is like. We consider friendships as tools to get what we want. We can be extremely opinionated when we're self-centered. And if we're self-centered, we, can, we don't have a real sense of empathy, which we saw already about that man out in the West Coast who didn't help. By the way, it was, it was, a, um, it was a situation that could have done a lot of good. It was a, an older black man that was having that seizure and was unconscious. And it was the man in the suit on his way, assuming, assuming he was on his way to work, was a white man. And you would have thought you wouldn't see color in an emergency like that. And yet, sometimes when people are self-centered, they just help themselves. They don't think of others. That's not what Jesus wants for, for us. And that's not what really Jesus wants from us as well. He says, everyone in verse 12 looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But he's saying, not Timothy. Not Timothy. Timothy doesn't look out for his own interest. He's looking out for Jesus. Not that Jesus needs to be protected, but what Jesus needs, what Jesus wants for this world, that's what Timothy wants. And he's willing to put aside his own concern, his own um, self-centeredness, so that he can center his life on what Jesus... And that's an example for me. And that's an example for you. And then in verse 12 it says, But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Timothy has proven character. You can only have proven character through a testing. You can only prove that you can do something if you have to do something. And that's what the word means. The word proven really means testedness. I know that's not an English word, but that's what the word really means. It's testedness. It's what you are after you've been tested successfully. Proven. That's the proven character that Timothy has. And imagine if we as believers, as followers of Jesus, had the proven character that as we go through tests, as we go through times of trial, as we go through situations where we could be self-centered if we wanted to, or we can be others-oriented, we can think about my mission in life, or we can think about what Jesus wants for my mission in life. As we go through those tests successfully, we can have proven character. And we have examples, like Timothy, in front of us, so that we can follow those as well. Proven character. It says, because as a son with his father, he has served me in the, world, in the work of the gospel. He's just joined in like a son would join in with their father. Now, I remember the times, if any of you ever had to, to work with your father, uh, I feel um, as though some of you had those situations where just around, home, around the house, you'd have to do different things. My parents um, 
were always, they said, we always let you sleep in till seven o'clock on Saturday morning, but then you have to get up and do some work. And uh, we, I remember there are times where I sometimes think, and my brothers and I would say, I don't know if this was a real job, like on a job list, or if it's just like at 7.30, we got to give them something to do. Because we would knock down a wall down in the basement, and then I think the next Saturday we would build a wall in the same spot. I, I don't, like, I'm a little foggy in my memory, but I think it seemed like there was like just made up stuff. And so, and there were times when, when dad would expect you to be able to do certain things and he would show you and then you should be able to do it. Or there'd be little tasks that he would have you do. And I can remember this one as though it were yesterday. I remember there was a time where uh, dad needed a specific tool and we were upstairs working and he said, just run down to the garage and get this tool. I got halfway down the garage, I got down the stairs, got outside, our garage was not attached, I got halfway to the garage and I just stopped, frozen, thinking, oh no, I don't remember what I was supposed to get. But I think I had frustrated my father enough already that day, and I felt like I couldn't go back and ask him what did he want. I'd already been gone about a minute, minute and a half. I thought if I go back, that's three minutes. Uh, and I go back and he's going to, I'm going to say, what did you want? And by then it was almost going to be too late. So I started slowly walking toward the garage thinking, what did he want? What did he want? What did he want? And eventually I remembered what he wanted and I grabbed it and I ran back as fast as I could. But uh, there was some, because I wanted to please him. I wanted to work hard. I wanted him not to be disappointed. And he said, that's what Timothy was like. It's like a father, try, a father and son situation where the son's trying to work hard and, and trying to please his father and do what his father wants to do. He goes, that's what Timothy was like. I think there's an example for us. That's what God wants us to be like when it comes to being about his business. And then in verse um, 13, sorry, 23, I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go for me, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. And then he goes on to the second example. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. So we have the example of Timothy. We have the example of another man, Epaphroditus. Here's another man that Paul wants to send to this church. Now, Epaphroditus was from that church, and that church had sent him as their representative to go and help Paul while he was in prison. He could provide, you were allowed back then, you were, in, were the type of uh, prisoner that Paul was, he was allowed to receive visitors, uh, he was allowed to have people come and provide for him in various ways, and this church, a thousand miles away from Rome, sent one of their representatives to go to be with Paul to help Paul with whatever he needed. They basically said, go and do whatever you can to help Paul from a thousand miles away. That's an amazing... Who would you pick? If you're, how, who would we pick? If we were that church and we said, okay, we have to send somebody a thousand miles away to care for somebody, to prepare, who would we pick? Well, they picked Epaphroditus. That's got to tell you something. Here's the man that was chosen to do this. But here's what it says as Paul writes about him. He says, Epaphroditus, it's necessary to send back Epaphroditus. He calls them a number of things. My brother. This isn't, he doesn't just say, uh, the guy that you sent to take care of me. He says, my brother. There's a closeness there. There is a relationship there. Somehow, they were able to bond in a brotherly relationship. And when Paul uses the word brotherly relationship, he means close 
familial type relationship. Not the brother relationship that you sometimes think of when you think, I remember when we had to drive down the road and we were saying, don't cross my side, and we would punch each other, and then I would punch him, and then he would punch me harder, and then I would say, hey, mom, dad, my brother punched me, and not that kind of brother, right? He's talking about the kind of brother who, who what a brother is supposed to be, that as you grow up and become real close brothers, that you know you're there for the other person, whatever that brother of yours needs, you're willing to do for him. He says, that's what Epaphroditus was to me, is to me, and I'm sending to you. He's my brother, relational. Next, he says, he's my co-worker, which means we work together, which means he's reliable. He's going to show up when things need to happen. He's going to do what he says he's going to do. He's reliable. I can depend on him. Again, this is, a, this is what it's supposed to look like when we are connected with Jesus, not just through salvation, but after salvation, as he wants us to grow. This is what he wants us all to start to look like. And he says, Epaphroditus is my brother, and he's my co-worker. We work together. He's reliable. And then he says that he's my fellow soldier. My fellow soldier. Paul was, remember, under guard. And he calls Epaphroditus his fellow soldier. What's a soldier? There's a soldier, a soldier is one who is committed. They have their orders and they're committed to following them out, no matter what. And when Paul describes Epaphroditus, he calls him a fellow soldier. He is fully committed, fully engaged in the task. And again, I look at my life and I look at, I wonder if you can look at your own life and think, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have been connected with him through salvation, what a great gift he has given to us. And yet he says, I don't want you just to stay as you are. I want you to be the person that you've been created to be. And here's the things that you should look like as you grow and as you mature. That's what he says he is. And there he is, fully committed. A fellow soldier. And then he says, who is your messenger? Who would you pick if you were this church in the city of Philippi? Let's send somebody to take care of Paul. I know, Epaphroditus. Everybody says, yeah, that's a good idea. And they send him. And he calls him, Paul calls him, your messenger. He's the guy that you picked because you knew he was trustworthy. You knew he would do what you sent him to do. You knew that you could send finances with him. You knew that you could give him the authority to make decisions on the behalf of that church. You knew that you could trust him to do whatever needed to be done because he was trustworthy. He's an example for us to follow. Amazing that, that Paul starts off with, be like Jesus, a man who was the son of God, who humbled himself. And then he says, this is how we're supposed to live. And then he gives us two examples to follow. Because I remember there are times when uh, I've been talking with people. There was a guy who came into my office when I was at another church. Uh, and he had a real problem with um, his specific situation. And I told him some basic principles that you're supposed, to be, you know, you're supposed to be honest and you're supposed to be people of integrity and those kinds of basic Christian things, right? And I, he said, well, you know, I'm not perfect. I said, no, but I'm not saying you're perfect, but this is what kind of person you should be. He goes, well, I'm not Jesus. I said, I, that's clear. <laughs> <laughs> I 
That's what I said. I said, that much is clear. Um, but I said, but Jesus, if we're connected with Jesus, he's supposed to infiltrate our lives. He's supposed to change us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out, so that we are different people from who we were before we, we met Jesus. So not only are we saved, not only are we forgiven, but he changes us to be more like himself. That's what he wants for us. And that's what Timothy was. And that's what Epaphroditus was. And there are people even in our church that are exemplary, type of people that God wants us to be. Let's find those people and emulate some things that we see in their lives. I'm not saying hold them up as a hero. I've said for years, never choose a hero that's still alive. Don't pick one of those. They're going to disappoint you, right? Uh, Pick somebody that's already gone and their story is pretty much concrete, right? Pick those as heroes if you want heroes, like Timothy, like Epaphroditus. This is the kind of people that we want. And he says for, talking about Epaphroditus, looking at this verse 26, for he longs for all of you. The church, his home church, he says he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. So he was sick from working so hard serving Paul, but that wasn't his concern. His concern was that his church that sent him found out that he was sick, and he was worried that they were worried about him, right? There's an others-centered kind of a person. And so he said that he was concerned that you heard he was ill, and it said Paul's comments on his illness, indeed, he was ill and he almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow, upon sorrow. He says, I couldn't even bear uh, the thought of losing Epaphroditus, and God had mercy on me by sparing him as well. And then he says, therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you will be glad, and I'll have less anxiety. My version says, and I'll have less anxiety. There's Paul, who's concerned about them, because they're concerned about Epaphroditus, who's concerned about that church. Like, there's everybody's concerned about everybody else. What a great situation. That's what God wants for Timothy, Epaphroditus, the church in Philippi, our church as well. He wants us to be concerned for each other. And he says, so then, when he gets there, this last verse I wanted to look at, he says, when he gets there, he says, so then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and, ver- and the next part says, and honor people like him. Hold them up a little bit. Uh, thank them for who they are. Recognize them for the example that they are. Honor, welcome him, he says, and honor people like him. And he's saying not just him. There are those other people at that church that need to be held up a little bit because they're such a great example for us. And so we can do that for each other. Even if there's a specific personality trait that you appreciate about someone else, there's something that I noticed in someone that they were, you know what, you might say, you were really patient at that time. I don't think I could be as patient as you are. And I think that's a great example for me. Hold them up a little bit, right? Not that don't be worried about them getting conceited, right? That's between them and the Lord. You know, be an encouragement, and find out somebody else and say, boy, I don't know how you did that. You know, you're, you're a great example of uh, the strength or the, the, the faithfulness or the trustworthiness or that kind of uh, being able to stick to something. I just really appreciate that about you. 
Hold them up, honor them a little bit. That's what Paul says, honor them a little bit. Hold them up. We've got examples. Our first example for sure is Jesus. Paul writes, be like him. He humbled himself and he gave himself. But he goes on to say there's others too. I've got Timothy and you yourselves, he says, I, you yourself sent um, this other one to me so that we could be together and you can care for me. And so those are the examples that we have. That's what it means to be connecting ourselves with Jesus and to one another, that we can spur each other on. We've got great examples. You might have great examples in your family. We've got great examples in our church of people that's, that we can model our lives after in one way or another. And we've got to be thankful for that. I'm thankful to Jesus. I'm thankful to God for his son. We need to be thankful. Let's pray. Lord, you are good to us. And I thank you for what you have done for us. For those of us who have trusted you, who have experienced salvation, Lord, what a gift you've given to us. And yet I also know that you don't want us to stay there. You don't want us to remain immature like we are. You want us to grow. And Lord, I thank you for teaching us through your spirit. I thank you for giving us examples in your word. I thank you for giving us flesh and blood examples right here at our church. Lord, I pray that we will honor them, that we will emulate them, and that we might be examples that others can look to as well.